Steve's and BJ and Steve appreciate it. I know that Genesis is probably one of those really weird places to begin a Christmas message, if you would. But you know, the way some churches are today, then again the way some people are today, I am not so convinced that if you were to do one of those roving reporters that ask questions, and you've got young people out there who, who couldn't name a single Supreme Court justice, probably don't even know who the governor of their state is. And I mean, it's amazing how many young people have no clue about some of the things that an ordinary person who's paying attention should know. Amen? But then when it comes to what this season is all about, and if you were to talk about the birth of a child, what do you think the birth of that child was all about? Probably wouldn't be able to tell you. And I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that probably that's true among many Christians. That they may have a vague idea, but I don't think they would have an in-depth detail of what it was all about. And so we come to the holidays and we celebrate it with the giving of gifts. And sometimes, even with the world's perspective on this holiday, well, it's not truly celebrated as a birth of Christ as much as it is a hoopla time. A time of coming together with booze and whatever else it is that uh, certainly wasn't there when the Christ child was born, that is for sure. And it wasn't any of the gifts that the uh, three wise men brought two years later. So in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through, 8 through 17, I, I kind of wanted to drop back and make sure that we all understood clearly what this celebration is all about that we celebrate in this day and age. So as we celebrate every, everything this season represents, we should take into account how we got to this point in time in history. So I have chosen to begin at an unlikely point in history, the Genesis account of the fall of man, plunged, which plunged all of man, all of humanity, into spiritual darkness. So many folks today and in the past celebrate Christmas and acknowledge that God sent his only begotten son without making the personal connection of the birth of Christ to the eventual death of Christ and what precipitated the, the, the necessity of the birth. And I think that's the important aspect. What precipitated the necessity of the birth of Christ? Well, the ignorance in the world today concerning the birth and the death of Christ has been lost in the increasing spiritual darkness. And to many, it is simply an excuse to indulge themselves in materialism. And for still others, it is a great excuse to have a day off for work. And for others, there is a brief reflection on the spiritual significance of the season, but no desire to fully comprehend what the Godhead has done and is still doing through this particular event. So this literally was that moment in time when God came down to dwell among men. Think about that. God himself came down to dwell among men. He hadn't done that since the Garden of Eden. Over 4,000 years of human history. And the last time, well not the last time, but there were some incidences along the way in which God presented himself. But there was an open dialogue between God and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until they chose to disobey God. And man has not had, other than a few along the, along the way of human history, have had that opportunity to be able to converse with God or to see him as he is. 
And so, because it was necessary, as the need of mankind was that serious, or as John expressed it in, in chapter 3 and verse 17, he said, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Might be saved. And as the Apostle Paul wrote to his spiritual son, Timothy, in that first epistle, chapter 1 and verse 17, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that God, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That was the purpose for Jesus coming into the world. God in his infinite wisdom chose the method and the means by which he chose. You and I never would have done that. You and I never would have conceived that. Certainly the religious leaders in Israel, they didn't conceive of it. They were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for him to come on that white horse to t take charge of the nation of Israel and to put down the enemies of Israel. But God had a different plan. A plan that was far greater. A plan that was more immaculate. A plan that really, in reality, was more exciting. But it was in the infinite wisdom of God to do so. So Jesus came on a mission that was predetermined before the foundations of the world were even established. So the Christmas message that we should understand is that we are a lost people alienated from God because of our sin and God providing the only begotten he ever intended to provide for you and me, his son Jesus Christ. And so we begin at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. Father, won't you guide and direct as we look to the message today. Lord, it is so important that we get a handle and know and can explain to others why we celebrate this particular time of the year. Lord, it may not be the exact day, it may not be the exact month or the exact time of year. But Lord, there is an acknowledgement that Lord, man's sin was so great that you, you had to send an antidote. And Lord, the way you chose was miraculous. The way you chose was beyond all human comprehension and wisdom. And Lord, we, we stand before you today in absolute awe of how you planned it all out and how you have worked it. And Lord, may we today with open hearts and open minds gather a greater appreciation for what you have done, for what you are doing and what you will yet do. We pray now that you guide and direct us to salvation or to rededication, whether here in the sanctuary or to our, to our families that are at home today. Lord, meet the need according to your desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message is simply The Promise Keeper. Now, I'm not talking about that organization called The Promise Keepers, which they pick up from the book of Proverbs, where iron sharpeneth iron. And certainly, I believe there is a, a need that we ought to hold ourselves accountable one to another along the way. But I'm talking about the ultimate promise keeper. The one who keeps a promise and never breaks it. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which may be an enigma to some this morning. And he says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The discussion is at that particular point that there is always going to be a problem between the redeemed of the Lord and the lost. There's always going to be a problem 
wherever God manifests his grace and wherever Satan abides. There's always going to be that trouble, always going to be that problem. We're going to have to deal with a lost and a dying world. We're always going to have to deal with the temptations that the world and Satan and our flesh puts before us. So very early on we are told that to walk with the Lord, to walk as the Lord would have us to walk, it's not going to be an easy walk. You've got an enemy. If you are a child of God today through saving faith in Christ, you've got an enemy. And he wants to do everything he can to destroy you and your walk. He wants to ruin your testimony and your life if he can. But anyway, first we need to establish the necessity of this promise of a redeemer. And, he, and God does so here in uh, chapter 3 and verse 15 in that there's going to be enmity. Uh, so in other words, he's going to send forth a means by which man could be restored to a relationship that was lost through rebellion. And so we need to establish the necessity of this promise of a redeemer and the simple answer is sin. Amen? Simply sin. And it is well established by the events which took place in the Garden of Eden, which by the way took place in the heart of Adam and Eve before it took place uh, physically. Uh, and uh, before they uh, even acted on that decision, it took place in their heart. Yeah, there was the conversation that the devil had with them back and forth. But nonetheless, they had to make the decision. And he tempted them. But she also knew that, that God said, now she added a couple things on there, but there was enough information there that she retained enough information to know that she should not have, but she was promised something by the devil. And that was that they would become as God. And they desired to become as God more than they desired to be obedient to God. Only to find out that the wisdom the devil was offering was absolutely inferior to the wisdom that being a, 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 a submissive, humble servant of the Lord would have provided for them. There's a lot of people out there today who are, who are following hard after worldly wisdom. Men who we hear how to solve the, the, the world's problems and the world's troubles. Now, I listen to the conservative perspective. But I also notice that in, in some of their solutions and some of their answers, they never include God. They never include the Holy Spirit. They never include the scriptures. Oh, they have their ideas. And they're conservative ideas, but they're not godly ideas. And God is the only one who has the real solutions. And so it is well established by the events that took place. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we should all be very familiar with those two portions of Scripture. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now God was not suggesting that Adam and Eve somehow remain stupid uninformed. God was going to be all the knowledge God was going to be all the wisdom. God was going to be all the understanding that they would ever need. And God had offered himself in that relationship to him. But they rather chose something that the devil said, listen, you can be as him, only to find out that they were nothing like him. Other than in the actual creation that he created them in the image of God, created them man and woman. 
And so in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we see God's generosity. In verse 16, of every tree in the garden thou mayest eat freely. They could have chewed the bark off the palm tree if they wanted to. But he said, of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, thou, no, you don't, don't, don't eat it. Don't partake of it. And so, in verse 16, we have the generosity of God. But in verse 17, we have one prohibition. When I grew up, I had, I, I had more than one prohibition in my house. <laughs> and I'm sure that you had more than one pro prohibition in your house as well. And when I get older as a teenager, I was supposed to be in by 11 o'clock. I didn't find myself having to sneak in, sneak in through a window after mom and dad had gone to bed. They locked the doors. But they always forgot to unlock one window. Maybe, on purpose, I don't know. But I was in shortly thereafter, for the most part. But in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, both developed a heart issue and both chose to reject God. So, in uh, verses 8, we're not going to read all in verses 8, 8 through 24. But the devil sold them a bill of goods that was rotten to the core. He lied to them. He deceived them. And when God finally rebuked them, she admitted that the devil had beguiled them. Which in and of itself is an important word. For those who would observe it would understand, she realized, she came to a realization that they had been duped. They had been lied to. They had been deceived. And that's why she said the serpent had beguiled her. And so she was beginning to see the, the and we'll read about it here. Just, well, actually, let's go, um, where do I want to go? Uh, chapter 3 and verse 15. But let me go down here a little bit here. Why can't I see it? I'm looking for a particular word. I can't see it right now. Beguiled. What's that? I was going the wrong direction. Uh, and the Lord God said unto the woman, uh, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. What a, how do you feel when, you, when you've gone and you've done something that you knew you shouldn't do, but you did it anyway? Huh. I mean, don't you feel like, What in the world was I thinking? What was going through my head? Well, obviously not the right things. Amen. <laughs> And so, we see here that in 18, uh, verse 8 through 24, God deals justly with each of them according to their sin. He didn't, he didn't accept Adam's excuse that, well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me and I did eat. Well, you know, get a backbone, man. Get a backbone. You knew it was wrong. Stand up. Quit yourself like a man. Well, God said, he probably said, how foolish can you be? You made a clear-cut choice. You were supposed to be the leader. I told you directly, and you told the woman. And so, man, don't blame your wives for your problem. All right? You can't blame them. Uh, if you know what God wants you to do, then you do what God wants you to do. And you do it the way God wants it done. And so in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, though, there is, there is so much more than meets the eye that is in, in, intimated in, the, in that verse. Such as the realization how Adam and Eve had been duped, or as she put it in verse 13, the word uh, beguiled me. Uh, they were coming around to the evil uh, of, of the evil one, Satan, and a desire to restore their friendship and relationship with God. Listen, we were beguiled. And I guess we could read into that a little bit if we want to. 
or say it's between the lines or it's in the Greek or the Hebrew somewhere in there, it might be, I don't know. But it might have been the expression of how do we get back to where we were? And, and I can't help but think for a moment that had to go through their minds, how do I get back to where we once were? I mean, they had sensed this guilt. They had sensed all of a sudden this shame that they never had experienced before because they chose to rebel against God. And here they are now, having done this and knowing that they had been duped, they had been fooled, they had been lied to, they had been misled here. Now all of a sudden, how do we get back to, to, to the way it was? And God tells them, for the time being, you don't. You don't get back to the way it was. The serenity, the peace that passes understanding that existed, the innocence that existed in the garden, it does, you don't go back to that again right now. At some point in time you will, and that's why we have 315. And so you say, Satan has beguiled me, but there is now a, a problem which, which did not exist prior to their, their disobedience. And it was now there's a sin factor in their lives. How can there be any form of reconciliation? How can things be made right again? Man has now experienced the forces of evil and has, and has to contend with the sinful desires of their flesh. They didn't have to contend with that before because there was no sin. Untested they were, but when they were tested, they chose to sin and now they became sinners. And so now there's a new element in their lives that they're going to have to deal with and deal with it through the flesh. So prior to this, they were not only innocent, but they had no desire in and of themselves to disobey God until Satan came along. They had no desire to trust. They had no reason to distrust God. There was no sin in their lives to separate them from God. Their experiences up to this point was an unbroken fellowship with God because he came to the garden in the evening and they conversed and they talked until all of a sudden this one day, Adam, where are you? Adam was hiding. Now, the request, I believe the, the question that God asked Adam was rhetorical. Because God knew exactly where they were. God knew exactly what they had done. But to force Adam to think and to ponder what he had done in a brief second of time. And he was ashamed to fellowship with God as he had fellowship with him before. So back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I'll put enmity between thee, and he's talking about between the serpent and the woman, and between thy seed and thy seed. He means literally the redeemed who will come to know Christ, who, or who will live by faith. Uh, Old Testament saints such as Abraham uh, who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and Daniel. We can go and name a lot of those individuals in the Old Testament who was faithful to God. But there was also sinners. Cain. Cain, though he was of the seed of Adam and Eve, spiritually he was of the seed of the devil. He rose up in anger. He was jealous. He hated his brother Abel because Abel brought forth a blood sacrifice and God did not accept the work of, of, of Cain's hands. Cain didn't get it. I don't know if Satan was building him up. I don't know if Satan was dealing with him on a prideful issue or not. I don't know. Wasn't there. But the truth of the matter is there was going to be the, the children of the devil and there's going to be the children of God. And whichever 
child you become is, is your decision, your choice today. Amen. Cain chose to remain a, a child of the devil. Abel did that which was right and he was obedient to God because he wanted to be a child of God as did Seth and so on down the line. And so they were given hope through the promise of God concerning the eventual defeat of Satan. There was going to come a day. And though there are, there are two seed groups today, the lost and the redeemed, you have to make a decision on which group you're going to be in. God, through his son Jesus Christ, makes it possible for us to become a part of the family of God. And we become the seed of Abraham, who by faith believed in God and trust in God. And so, there will be the eventual defeat of Satan that God will deal with Satan accordingly. And God can deal with Satan even now in our lives. Satan is going to do everything he can to disrupt your life, to disrupt your testimony, to turn you from God. And he is at times very successful. And so, we know that God is going to deal with Satan, but he also deals with Satan each and every day. We'll never know how many times Satan has been rebuked on our behalf. But I'm so thankful that I have a God who knows where Satan is and he knows what Satan's up to. Amen. Amen. And so when Jim Gangwood gets in one of his stupid moments, there is a loving Lord who says, leave him alone. Back off. Amen. So what was God's plan? What was God's plan? God's plan in, in chapter 3 and verse 15 was the promise of a redeemer, his son Jesus Christ. Because the word bruise, <clears throat> if we can look at there, uh, and it's uh, verse 15, and, and uh, uh, it shall bruise thy head. Literally, the idea is to, to crush. There's going to come a day when the full force of God will take Satan out altogether. Right now, he's on a leash. The devil's on a leash. And when God jerks that chain, he jerks that leash, Satan has to back off. And that brings us to the second point, the first point being the promise made. And then the promise kept. And that's what this season's really all about. In Genesis, we find that there's a need of a Savior. <coughs> we all needed a Savior. And if you have come to a saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ, then he is your Savior. He is the only Savior you're ever going to need. He not only saved us from our sin, but he has saved us to the uttermost. And so in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, as we even touched on it last Sunday, for, for unto you in the city of David is born this day a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So the promise that he made 3,000 or so years earlier was manifested. And so there are more than 456, I think there's much more than that altogether, more than uh, 456 prophecies concerning Christ in the Bible. And according to Edersheim, however, just considering 48 of those promises and prophecies, the probability of just one person fulfilling 48 of those prophecies is given the mathematical probability of 10th to the 157th power. One person 
fulfilling those prophecies. 10 to the 157th power. If you want to know what that's like, you go home and get yourself a ream of paper and start putting out 157,000 zeros. That'll give you an idea of the authenticity and the infallibility of the Word of God. What does any of this mean or have to do with God keeping his promise? Given just the mathematical probability just mentioned, Edersheim says, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Think about that. And yet, it's amazing how many intelligently or allegedly intelligent people, and, and they are intelligent in, in their own studies, I guess, of evolution. And you've heard me say that the more I think about the human body, the more amazed I am. And if you go through sicknesses or you have to deal with certain things, it's amazing. And doctors who study this, physicians who study this, <coughs> I don't see how they don't get it. And I know that some of you folks in here have eye problems. But just think how intricate the, how intricate the eye is with how it's created and how it's made. And, and I ask myself when I think on these things, how in the world... Could nothing rise to the place where it said, this is what an eye needs to do? <laughs> and I said, there's no way that nothing could develop to that kind of intelligence. There had to be an intelligence right from the get-go. I can look at other various aspects along the way of the human body. Just the, 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 the process of hearing, the process of speech and the tongue and and, and reasoning and all these things here, and I'm thinking to myself, how does that ever just evolve? What life form that is lower than what it wants to develop into decides that it's going to get to that particular point? Does it somehow say, I, I, I would even know what it wants to be? I mean, if it's, if it's living successfully at the stage that it is, why? I mean, some of us are like that. We get into a pattern of our lives and say, listen, everything's going well. I don't, need to, I, don't need to, I don't need to improve on anything. Life is good. Life is going along. I got a roof over my head. I got food in the refrigerator. I got food in the cabinets. I got a little money in the bank. Well, are you satisfied with where you are? Or do you want God to make more out of your life, your thoughts, your activities. And so I'm, I'm asking myself, how in the world does something that doesn't have what I have today know that I am what they want to be? At least not me personally, but, you know, as, as to function and biology. Man, if you, if you can't put two and two together and come up that there had to be an awesome amount of intelligence to be able to create right from the get-go, and not over thousands or millions or billions of years of evolution. 
And so, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So we saw in point number one, a promise made. Now we come to Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. We see that the promise is kept. You know, God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 talks about the immutability of God, where God cannot lie. A broken promise is really a lie. Now, if it's a conditional promise, that's a different story. But if you make a promise, you tell your child, I'm going to take you fishing today, and you turn around and decide you're not going to do it, you just lie to that child. So a broken promise is really a lie. Now, if you have a conditional promise that says, I'd like to go fishing with you tomorrow, barring any emergency or any other thing that comes up that's going to take precedence, but I'll make it up to you. That's a different story. But God never lies. When he makes a promise, he intends to keep the promise. And so unless we can grasp even somewhat of the holiness and the purity of God, we will not be able to grasp our need for a Savior or why that which Adam and Eve did was really so bad. And I believe we have this mentality in our hearts and in our minds today that what I'm doing, even though I, I know that God may not be pleased with it, it's not really all that bad. And so we have that same mentality that we can do certain things there that we know that we would not do if God was physically present. And we ask ourselves, I just don't see why that's so bad. And it's because oftentimes we do not understand the holiness of God. And he commands of us twice in 1 Peter chapter 1, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Or be ye holy as I am holy. He says the same thing to the Jews back in, in, in Leviticus, that he wanted them to be a holy people. He wanted the world around them, the known world in that day, to see that there was a difference between the people of God and, and, and the family of the devil. He wanted them to know that. He wanted the world to see that. And they wanted the world to desire and to crave what it is that they had with God. And you can't do that when we're compromising. However little it may seem to us, unless we can embrace the holiness of God, you're never going to understand why what Adam and Eve did in that garden was a tragedy. And so, what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden was so very, very serious and so very tragic and the damage they did to all of, you, all of humankind. And so we have Romans chapter 5, which ties in beautifully with uh, Genesis chapter 3 and, and the whole experience there. Romans chapter 5. I think most of us are familiar with what's going on in the direction. And it tells us, and, it, and, it, and it's, and it's a, a, a backward look toward that moment and that time in the Garden of Eden. Chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore is by one man. That's the man Adam. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That's that seed that he spoke of there in, in, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 15 of Genesis. All the offspring from Adam and Eve we would actually we would be born sinners with a sin with a sin nature alienated from God, and that's how we got it. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who are a lot like Dr. Fauci, whether you like the guy, or you don't like the guy, who says, "I am a really good person. 
And therefore, I don't really, I, I don't need to go to church. I don't know if someone had asked him that question. Well, do you go to church? He said, I don't need to go to church. I'm a good person. There's a lot of people out there who think that they don't need certain things because they're a good person. But the Bible says even a good person has a sin nature and they're alienated from God. And so God's not looking at that goodness. He's looking at that sin nature that, that we have inherited. And so we got that from one man. I pass it on to my children. They pass it on to their grandchildren. And boy, you can tell. I'm just kidding. Uh, we have great kids. They're all saved. All of our grandkids are all saved. And we're, 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 we're just ecstatic about that for a fact. But nonetheless, Peg and I passed that sin nature on, just like my mom and dad passed it on to me, and my brothers and my sisters, and so on. So wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. And so we celebrate during this season a God who keeps his promises. And the sin question is answered with the coming of Christ in his first advent. Born as a babe who would grow to manhood and make his way to the cross. So that you and I can be redeemed from our sin. John 3.16, for God what? So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. The Apostle Paul, a very devout religious man, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, met Christ on the Damascus Road. A life-changing, life-altering experience and he penned in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be, shall be saved. Shall be saved. What you or I decide to do with this information will determine our eternal destiny. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We close with the promise yet to come. John chapter 14 and verse 2. We're all familiar with that portion of scripture. Jesus has given what should have been good news, but it was perceived as, whoa, what's going on here? What's happening here? And he was going to tell his disciples that he was going to be leaving them. He was going to be ascending to the Father. But he would have to, first of all, go to the cross and die and, and give his life and shed his blood. They had fallen in love with the Lord Jesus Christ during those years, few, few years of ministry, three years. He had become more than just a, a, a redeemer, more than the Messiah. He had become a very close mentor, one whom they know, knew loved him, them very dearly. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And I'm sure by this time their ears are kind of crying, okay, well, where's this going? What's going to be happening here? And he says, in my father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, you're going somewhere? You're going to be leaving us? Again, all the thoughts that must have gone through their minds at that moment. But he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Come on, man, this is just temporary. You've got a mission that I've called you to, 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 to work. And at some particular point in the future, I'm coming back. And you're going to inhabit those mansions. 
On Saturday, we celebrated the homegoing and graduation of Dr. Guy Goodell. He went home to be with the Lord. He's got his mansion. What a glorious homecoming for a man who, who served the Lord so richly for so many years. But Jesus is sharing a promise to his disciples that is true of any and all who will come to a saving knowledge in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus trying to convey to his disciples what the next several days held for him and that when his, uh, when his death, burial, and resurrection were accomplished that he was going to return to his heavenly home. But don't let that trouble you because I'm going to come again. And I'm going to bring you with me. <coughs> and so Jesus wants us to know that he is coming again. Why prepare a place for us if he isn't going to come and gather us unto himself? Why bother? Now if you're Jehovah's Witness because they're a select few. <laughs> Unfortunately they're wrong. But he wants us to know that he is coming again. And he's preparing a place for us. First Thessalonians chapter 4. And I use this uh, quite readily in, in, in funeral services. And I, I did so at, at Martha's as well. Because Paul gets right down to the heart of the matter. I'll get to it in just a minute. In First Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, there was a concern what's happened. Uh, perhaps maybe some had been teaching that the uh, rapture had already occurred, that the believers, the believers were gone, or it was going to be very eminent, and that they would, uh, that the eminent, the uh, eminency of the, uh, the rapture would take place. And what about our loved ones that died and had been buried? And so he says here, he says for uh, in verse thirteen, he said, uh, but I would have you, uh, but I would. Uh, not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or those who have passed away, uh, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. That's a meeting in the air, that's a meeting in the clouds, and that's a rapture. And it says, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, that uh, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. How many of you believe he's going to keep that promise? Wow. He kept the first. He kept the second. God cannot lie. He's going to keep the third. Perhaps maybe the the three most important promises that God has given to us in humanity. Christmas should remind us that God says we need a Savior. Christmas excuse me, reminds us that God has kept his promises to send a Savior. The birth of Christ is a fulfillment of that promise. If you have not come to a saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ and have no desire to do so, then you have chosen your eternal destiny. You have chosen your destiny. If you desire for heaven to be your eternal destiny, then coming to a saving faith in Christ is absolutely imperative. You won't get there any other way. And today is about as good a day as any, amen? Because you don't know if you've got tomorrow. You have no idea. You know, Dr. Guy was, uh, Goodell was, uh, was a rather healthy man. I mean, he hiked and he jogged and he exercised. He went to the gym on a regular basis and so on. And it was pancreatic cancer. Now, the moral is not 
forget going to the gym because you're going to die of something else. But he was, he, he was able to live a robust life and to accomplish a lot of things because he was physically fit. But his Hebrews 9.27 came as it appointed unto a man once to die. After this, the judgment. It was graduation day for Brother Guy. And if you don't come to a saving knowledge of the person of Jesus Christ, then you, you, you're not going to have a graduation day. And so, if you want heaven to be your home, then just simply accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Oh, come on, preacher. Can't be that easy. Christ took all the pain and the agony and the difficulty. He took it with him to the cross so that all we had to do was come to a saving faith in what he did as our substitute. That which you and I deserved, he took upon himself. So that by faith, we could come into the family of God. Do not let Satan convince you that you can do this later because later usually comes just that too late. We're very thankful. Praise God that Karen and Walt is in good shape this morning in spite of the accident. It could have been different if it wasn't but the hands of the Lord. On the way to church, they could have gone out to a new Eternity with Christ to be at home with the Lord. So you have no idea what time you have or you don't have. So today is always a good day to make the right decisions and the right choices concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and how we live our lives. Amen? There is no time like the present to make sure of your eternal destiny. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be together. Lord, how precious is your word. We pray that you'll meet the need of this hour. And Lord, we are rejoicing because, Lord, we're, we're being reminded of, of, of what our, our need is, what our need has always been, what man's need has always been, what the solution to the sin question has, has always been. And it was always your intent to, to, to bring your son forth, to be the answer and the solution, the antidote to the sin question. And Lord, for many here this morning, if not all, they have, they have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and I, I'm sure that many of our home viewers have done likewise. But Lord, there may be one in our assembly today. Uh, there may be more than one at home or somewhere down the line who will download this message wondering what this is all about. And Lord, that they will see their need to receive the Savior. And Lord, we ask and pray that as the Holy Spirit waxes strong on, on, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will bring them to that power, bring them to their knees, and, and, and work in their heart to a point where they, they know that this is the moment, and it's not to be trifled with, that this is the moment to surrender. This is the moment to yield and to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for so great a love has not only taken our place, but made the solution fair, equitable, so that everyone, regardless of their age of understanding, can come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we can live our lives not just only in faith believing, but Lord, in faith action. 
believing the Word of God, believing the things that you would have us to do and, and, and the things that you want us to, to bring into our lives, to inculcate into our lives. We can do that by faith and live a life so that when that time comes that we're going to stand before the judgment seat, that, Lord, we'll be able to hear from the sweetest lips the most glorious words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. The choice is yours this morning. To either continue on outside the family of God, just because you came to church doesn't mean you're in the family of God today. You're in the family of God through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I encourage this one, if you have not done that, with heads bowed and eyes closed, say, Preacher, pray for me today. I have never accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I know I need to do that. And Preacher, would you pray that I'll make that right choice today? Do it. Preacher, pray for me. Folks, you can do the same thing at home. Let us know if you've made a decision. But as believers today, the Christmas celebration is exactly the celebration of God's great love and wisdom in doing what he did the way he did it and making the message very clear that we can all understand it and comprehend it. Let's make sure that we start living as the children of the Lord. And follow the Lord as we ought to. Father, we thank you again for this time that we be together. And Lord, bring us back together again this evening as we celebrate through the candlelight service today. And, and, and uh, to, Lord, to honor and to glorify you. And Lord, we want to lift you up. We want to magnify your name. So, Lord, be with each and everyone who is here this morning. Those who have joined us online. Uh, Lord, uh, uh, meet, each, meet each and every need, we pray. Now, Father, dismiss us with thy blessings. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Oh, yes. Oh, man. How could I forget Barb? Forgive me, Barb. We're up to see her. Now, some of you didn't know that she's been diagnosed with leukemia. And uh, I'm hoping that every one of us will have the same testimony that she has. Uh, she's upbeat. She says, yeah, it surprised me. But it didn't surprise God. God has a purpose. God has a reason. And uh, I don't think the doctors and nurses are going to have a better witness or family members as well. So hold Barb up in prayer. Uh, give her a phone call. Uh, her number is, uh, her cell phone I believe is in the directory. Give her a call. Let her know you're thinking about her. Let her know you're praying about her. Because um, she's, she's going to be in the hospital over the Christmas holidays. So uh, I know, just take a few moments out of your busy schedule and let her know uh, that you're praying for her. And, that'll be brought. and uh, she is, uh, she's not totally in isolation at this particular point. You can visit her. Uh, she's in Miller 5... 114, uh, fifth floor, room 114. And uh, you do have to wear a mask when you're in the room because, again, her immune system is flat out compromised. All right? And I know that somewhere along the line she would just love to see you. And uh, the less people come visit her, the more she's going to talk to you. <laughs> you say, well, preacher, I don't know... I don't know if I, I don't know what to say. Then you go there and you pray with her and you talk with her and she will guide you and direct you in that conversation. Amen. So pray for Barb. Send her a card or no. I'm not sure. She may be home next week possibly. It really depends. She's taking shots right now. She's on medication for that. Uh, so again, like I say, she can have business. So please pray for her. Uh, 
We're going to pray for her right now again because I forgot. Father, again, we think of Barb today. And Lord, uh, pray that she'll forgive me for uh, not listing it down there. Uh, but Lord, uh, uh, we thank you for the richness of her testimony. Lord, the love and the passion that she has for you. Lord, the acceptance of, uh, of this phase of her life. And, and Lord, uh, we know that uh, there are those who have had leukemia that have many, 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 many years that they've been able to live with it and deal with it. And Father, uh, <clears throat> we just hate to see you uh, take from our midst uh, such, a, such a cherished lady who is beloved by, by all of us here at Calvary. And so, Lord, you guide, you direct, uh, you heal, you men. Give the doctors the wisdom and discernment that they need. Lord, may her, may her testimony have, uh, have all the power and the forces of heaven to change lives that she comes in contact with there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>